Welcome to Curious Pete. I'm your host, Peter Winkler, and today I sit down with Sophia Volsky, a marine biologist out of Hobart, Tasmania. And today we discuss our oceans and climate change. Ooh. I asked Sophia for a few pointers on how to talk about the subject as well without sounding like a total nincompoop in public. This and more on today's episode. Yeah, they sound pretty good, actually, yeah. Yeah? Okay, awesome. Yeah. Nice. Um, so, yeah, what, what, what have you been up to? You're, you're, in, um, you're in a new... Have you started your, your course already? Yeah, so it's an admin position I'm doing at the moment, but it's um, working for the Australian Antarctic Division, so I'm actually on the government's payroll now, and even though it's an office job, um, it's very relevant to my field, and... I value the connections I make there as well. And yeah, I've started that since last week. Wow. So, wait, so what does that all entail? What What is the... Um, uh, it's in their recruitment office. So I'm calling up all the candidates that are going down to Antarctica and booking them in for um, what we call selection centers. So where they go into um, a series of experiences, workshops, where they get assessed for their qualifications and um, whether or not they get to go to Antarctica. Wow. You know, yeah. I've, always, I've, I've always wanted to do that. I've always wanted to go. Uh, to Antarctica. Yeah. Like I, so if you did decide to go this year and you had an application that went through mm-hmm. and um, they saw you as fit, then I would have called you by now and said, are you available to go to yeah. our selection center? <laughs> All right. What do they, what do they yeah. look for, for, for things like that? Um, so I'm, I've been calling even from tradies, plumbers, um, electricians up to sort of the supervisor roles, the scientists, Mm. um, anything really. Antarctica does not discriminate. (laughs) (laughs) There's chef roles, there's all kinds. Yeah. Yeah. That's pretty cool. And how long, how long are those roles for? They're like, what, six months or. Yeah. Usually I think you start with going for the summer only Mm -hmm. um, because overwintering is quite uh, an effort. Yeah. When it's dark the entire time, it's um, the the boat leaves, so there's no support. Um, I think those teams are very well trained. I think if you're going for the first time, you'd be going for a summer, which is a few months. Come mm. back before the winter. Yeah. 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 Right. Yeah. Very interesting. Uh, I remember like a few years ago, before I actually, I actually decided I was came came to a decision: Do I go to Australia or do I go to Antarctica? And right. if I actually got approved for going to Antarctica, um, I, I definitely would have taken it. No offense, Australia, but I definitely would, have, <laughs> definitely would have gone. And it wasn't, I didn't apply for anything special. It was just like working in the kitchen or something like that, you know? Yeah. And, and so was that with which country would that be? It would have been with the United States. All right. Oh, yeah. yeah. So they um, have their own program going down there. Yeah. Awesome. Oh, that's so cool. Yeah, mm. I'm, I'm, I guess I'm. I guess I wonder if there's been any sort of delay or, um, I guess, well, I mean, you know, COVID and traveling. You know, it's been yeah. some sort of halting situation. But I, I wonder if if they've experienced that too in Antarctica because you kind of need support, I'd imagine, for everybody down there. Yeah. Well, on one hand, they're very much used to doing things like quarantine, 
Mm. Um, that's that's the main game in Antarctica in general, mm. and biosecurity and all that, and um, having all those measurements in place. Also, when you're going down there, you're on a boat, so it's quite easy to just isolate for two weeks, make sure everyone's fine, and then go. Mm. Um, so now the ships that are leaving from Hobart, they're usually doing two weeks of quarantine before they're leaving um, on their own in a hotel room here, and then mm. they go on the boat and isolate for another two weeks, just the crew before they even leave the harbour. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, But these kinds of uh, measurements are pretty easy to put in place when you're already dealing with um, sort of a lot of biosecurity restrictions and, um, yeah, vacuuming down your boots so you don't bring any mud, things like that. Yeah, wow. They're very much used to doing all the safety, so they've just upped it a bit more for COVID. Mm. Yeah. 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 I'd imagine being on a boat and being on quarantine. I mean, does it, is that how long it takes? Does it take two weeks to get there in a boat? Um, well, it depends on where you're going. Yeah. Yeah. I and suppose. it depends uh, on what kind of, sorry, one second. <laughs> Out. Apologies, the dog's locked out now. <laughs> Is that the dog? Yeah. Squeaky toy? Yeah, he loves his squeaky toy. He loves when I'm on the phone. So it's not good for a podcast. So No, no, it's all good. I have I interviewed. I have the same situation with uh, with my cat. Like, yeah. I have to lock the door and the cat like just, it's like he's a little zombie trying to break through the door. Like, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's like Pet um, cemetery or something outside. Yeah, where was I? Um, two weeks. Yeah, so it really depends how long it takes on a boat. I think two weeks is a good uh, ballpark idea, but um, some of the scientists, for example, they have cruises that go with multiple projects on them. So they might have oceanographers that are mapping the ocean floor and they need to go at a certain pace. So they take a long time or they have to be in a certain location. And when you have only two or three boats to work with. Everyone's trying to do their project. So you have to align your trip with what everyone needs. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. yeah. Very interesting. Um, I'm fascinated by that stuff, to be honest. Like there's something about being on a boat that just um, really fascinates me. I, I don't know what it is. Like, yeah. Cause there's a few things that I haven't uh, done that I still want to do. Um, and that is to, I would love to do the uh, sea shepherd and to kind of, you know, go and be on the boat with like all those extreme people just yes. to kind of experience it. But it, it, it would be such an interesting slice of life just to be on the boat and to experience what they're doing. Um, and then the other thing is to go to Antarctica and, mm. um, you know, Jess and I had talked about going and doing the, the, the tour of Antarctica, but it's such so crazy expensive, you know, like yeah. up to maybe $10,000 or something like that for yes, probably seven minimum Yeah, for a cruise that goes for a few weeks, I think. Yeah. 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 yeah so pretty, um, pretty intense. Uh, yeah. And on top of that, you have to travel to Argentina or Chile. They don't do those cruises from here. They always run them from uh, South America because mm -hmm. uh, the Antarctic Peninsula comes up that way and nearly touches Chile at the bottom. So it's quite easy for you to get there compared to here and being on an ocean for two weeks in like high seas. Yeah, because the uh, uh, what the the position where Australia is like it's quite rough seas, isn't it? Between here it and, is, yeah. and Antarctica, so yeah, the experience. <laughs> 
there is flights that go, scenic flights. So you can take a flight from Hobart and fly over Antarctica and have a look without landing and come back. Oh, really? How, that, how yeah. long does it, how long does that take? Just a few hours, like half a day or something. Yeah. Oh, that's, that's pretty interesting. That's probably like another $10,000 as well, I'd imagine. <laughs> it's not that much, no, because you're not even landing. You're just flying over it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, fair enough. So with uh, with what you're doing now, is that going to give you the opportunity for you to go to Antarctica as well? Um, hopefully, when I start my PhD this year, I'll be able to go to Macquarie Island, which is a sub-Antarctic island. Um, with, it's sort of between uh, Australia and Antarctica. So it is Australian territory mm-hmm. um, and there is boats going there and there's projects going on there that uh, my science is a part of researching the elephant seals on Macquarie Island. Oh, wow. So it would be lovely to go and visit that. Yeah. So um, yeah. what's, uh, so can, can we talk a little bit more about that, about uh, the elephant seals in Macquarie Island? Yeah. Yeah. So uh, the elephant seals are huge, massive seals that they're called elephants because of their big trunks. Um, and they uh, go on shore to breed um, and scientists have counted them in this particular location and all around Antarctica on subantarctic islands. They've been counting their population numbers um, since the 1950s even. Mm. So in this data set that I have been working on for the last year, um, we've seen sort of you can map uh, changes in the population with changes in the environment. Uh, for example, if the seals were hunted in the early 1900s, their numbers would go down quite significantly. And what I've done um, with my honors project last year was mapping out how their numbers are changing through climate change and how, how they're adapting to changes in the ocean um, temperatures and changing in certain climate uh, conditions. Hmm. So uh, wh- why would someone, because you're talking about hunting them, like I wonder what, like what? Yeah, so they used to hunt seals and whales here in Australia for their oil. That was uh, in the early 1900s, so on 19, yeah, and late 1800s. I mean, you know, I, I remember hearing about that too, like, you know, when I would read, um, uh, what was it, uh, Moby Dick. And, yeah. And I was so interested about that because you know how much oil does a does a whale have because i thought they were using it i heard things about them using it as for like lamp oil and i'm sure there's a bunch of other things but does it really have that much oil you know it does yeah it's a huge animal yeah it's sad but yes it does we don't need it anymore people used to need that for products we don't have that need anymore we can make things from or we can chemically create stuff like that now mm. so so how do you explain things that are happening with uh you know if we're going back to the sea shepherd about you know whaling that say like the japanese are doing uh, but they say it's for research but you know it's called spade a spade here it's not yes you know for yeah australia has a, a very interesting history with that because we as a country have been fighting japan actively on that for years they've been taking japan to court on this and I guess the most recent result of Japan pulling out of um, the International Whaling Commission is a result of that which um, well the scientists themselves are obviously disappointed that Japan doesn't want to commit to not actively whaling anymore um, sort of pulling out of that agreement means they're openly saying that we're we are not agreeing with 
the conservation of whales in its entirety. Yeah, but do do they have a reason for that? Like the reason would be that before, when they were in the commission, there would still be whaling, but calling it scientific research, which is not true. Mm. And now what they're doing at least is they're being honest about it. And <laughs> one thing you can do when you're openly saying that you are whaling is that you can report your numbers, which would help us as scientists around the world to at least know how many whales you're taking out of the ocean for whatever purpose that you have. Um, Well, yeah, it's that sort of argument in between trying to control something or trying to forbid them from doing it, it, but then you have no idea what they're taking because they're doing it illegally. Yeah, yeah, fair enough. Yeah. it's it's quite sad. I heard that there was like really because they talk about uh, if you look at, um, I mean, there's a big debate on to um, how you would. Gosh, I always like stumble over my words here. Um, <laughs> there's a big debate about how uh, one can, um, you know, oh, what's that word? Gosh, sorry, my mind is going blank here. Um, uh, oh, sorry. Uh, there's a big debate about how someone can humanely uh, kill uh, animals. So, yes. um, for example, you know, there's, there's different techniques, let's say with cattle. Um, mm. But when it comes to a whale, you know, there's, there's no real humane way to kill a whale because of its size. Yes. And, then, and is, that, is, that, um, is that true? I think so, yeah. Because, I mean, uh, you can't ever guarantee that you're only going to hit the brain or something because it's just a moving target in the ocean. It's so difficult yeah. to catch. Um, so they're not they're not precisely doing anything there. Mm. Yeah. I would definitely agree with that statement. Yeah, and that's and that's something that's really like extremely sad. I, I just never understood why anybody would even do whaling in the first place. You know, the amount of like yeah. CO two they can they can absorb, and um, that was another thing I, I I read somewhere about the. Uh, the amount of like carbon emissions that they offset, uh, yeah, yeah, is uh is equal to I can't remember how many trees, but it was um, it was it was a considerable amount, and to mm. have whales uh, in our in our ecosystems is something that's incredibly important to help combat something like climate change. Yes, absolutely. We call them carbon sinks, mm. which what's happening is they are feeding on other things in the ocean that has already absorbed carbon. And then um, they take up all of that into their own body and eventually they die and sink to the bottom of the ocean and the carbon goes with them. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's interesting. So it just gets trapped in like, so if they um, biodegrade, it doesn't, it doesn't float to the surface or anything? No, they're so heavy. It goes to the bottom of the ocean and it won't come back up until plate tectonics change or the currents are taking it far and wide. Oh wow! Yeah, well, that's pretty cool. So yeah, the so, ocean is a deep, dark place. Yeah, once something's is. down there, it's it's sort of it usually stays depending on what the conditions are. So it's really hard to get something to the bottom of the ocean, and something like, as heavy as a whale could actually help sink stuff down there. Oh right, okay. Mm. So is there is there any sort of effort uh, that's being made to, I don't know, uh, I guess breed more whales? I think the sort of the protection of the whales worldwide was already the main effort. And we are seeing some stocks that have recovered. 
Mm-hmm. Um, there is no breeding method per se. All you can do is protect the species and um, hope that countries like Japan only take whatever they need when it comes to it. Um, I guess if only Japan is doing it and a few other countries like Norway that are doing some whaling for their cultural heritage. Yeah, um, I've, I've seen that. Like they come, they come into like uh, what some bays, isn't it? Like in, in Norway yeah. and they just go out with like a big harpoon and just viciously murder a bunch of uh, whales yeah. in, the, in the harbor. That's a, yeah, that's, that's its own cultural problem that the, the Northern Hemisphere is having with sort of people that have hunted whales their entire lives. It's, it's part of their sort of yeah, cultural heritage. Mm. And um, some do for surviving and living off the meat as well. So okay. you, have to, you have to sometimes respect what the indigenous cultures are doing mm-hmm. uh, near sort of the cold North Pole. Um, and that if they're taking a whale that feeds an entire village, uh, for a few months, then that's one whale down that is actually doing something good for them, I guess. Mm-hmm. It always comes into perspective. And I guess um, overall the protection of whales is still in place in most countries other than I'd say Japan, Norway, yeah, maybe Canada. There's some uh, tribes there. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, like the... Uh... Yeah, the uh, indigenous tribes up there, the was the Inuits or something. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I was going to ask you about uh, climate change, and I and I and I always enjoy speaking with uh, people who are uh, educated about about the matter, and mm-hmm. um, I just wanted to hear your uh, side of of the um, of the thing because a lot of people are out there still kind of denying the fact that climate change is even real. Um, what, like, what do you, what do you say to, to things like that? I think that's, uh, sad and ridiculous if you're still denying climate change, even uh, if you're not educated on the topic, I speak to farmers all the time that see the change in, um, the weather. The problem is that climate change is not one effect. It's not global warming. It's multiple, uh, sort of drivers. And sometimes that means colder weather or more rain rather than just hotter climate everywhere and it's easy to uh, understand it's definitely not easy to understand Mm -hmm. um, but it's out there and we can feel it if you're growing plants if you're just uh, looking at the what the past weather was like in recent years um, you can detect change in certain areas including where my family is living in berlin Mm -hmm. you can feel changes you can feel changes all over the world. And, yeah, it's silly when people do deny it. But open conversation is one way that I find um, to address people that want to deny everything is the only way to have those conversations with these people. Mm. So I guess what you're doing is really in the right niche there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, um, it's it's difficult for me because you know if i come across someone who's like a um like a climate change uh denier uh two things happen I, i've noticed is that one people get really angry for some reason they, they get really angry about it i don't know yeah. why i don't know why they're so angry about something like this uh, <laughs> like if, if anybody should be angry it's people who like um understand that it is happening 
Yeah. It seems like the people who <laughs> refuse it's happening, they're the ones the most angry. Um, uh, so there's that. I see a bit of anger. But then I also have, I just, I'm so shit at actually being able to like tell them why it's real, you know, and right. I just have no facts. I'm like, ah, I can't argue it. And then, and then, and then they continue denying it. Like, you see, you can't even, you can't even argue it. So, um, you know, arm me up. So okay. I can what, do. What can, what but should I say to them? It's, it's such a tricky topic to start just dissecting because, um, well, one of the main drivers of climate change is carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. And that's because it's changing what's happening in the atmosphere. And it's actually giving us a bigger layer of protection, similar to the ozone layer. And that layer is now um, reflecting all the sunlight that's coming in is reflecting back onto the earth too many times, sort of switching in between the clouds and back and making everything a little bit warmer rather than um, that layer being a little bit thinner and escaping back out into space. So the sunlight is getting trapped and warming up everything. That's the first basic concept. And that's, but that's purely based on the CO2 emissions that are hanging around in the atmosphere. And once you start talking about CO2, then all the discussions come up between what's actually causing the CO2. Is it humans? Is it industrial, like mechanical cars? Is it animals? Is it something else? Um, so that is all the f- sort of uh, things you have to drill into when people talk about climate change. Mm. Um, but the basic concept of it is that something is happening that's adding more CO2 into the atmosphere and we can map out what's been happening in the entire history of the earth, including ice cores in Antarctica giving us CO2 concentrations dating back into times when there was no sort of animal alive on planet earth. <laughs> wow. Um, <laughs> ice, yeah. ice that old. Yeah. You can map back to yeah, hundreds of thousands, millions, billions of years. It's amazing. Um, there was times when there was more CO2 in the atmosphere and there was times when there's more CO2 like now in the atmosphere when there was living things on the planet, but it was definitely not as comfortable as we have it right now. Mm-hmm. And so the scientists can, well, I don't want to use the word prove as a scientist, you never really prove anything, but you can show what's happened with CO2 emissions over the last 200 of years. 200 years easily mm-hmm. as we have gone through industrialization and as population have, has grown, um, the CO2 emissions have gone up just immensely. Mm. And actually every country that's going through industrialization is putting out more emissions into the atmosphere because they're switching to everyone now has their own car, other things going on, or even burning coal back in the day. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that's the main start of the conversation is when people deny climate change, I think they usually want to deny our responsibility to climate change. The counter argument usually is that there has been multiple occasions when the planet has been, um, in a similar situation, either hotter or even colder ice ages, so that there is a natural fluctuation going on where the temperatures are changing and where the CO2 emissions are changing. And that is true. Um, What 
we as scientists like to explain to people is that the change itself isn't the problem right now. It's the rate of the change. So us humans are emitting more CO2 in the atmosphere and that's making the temperatures go up faster than they would naturally. And that change is having a profound effect on our ecosystem because the animals are unable to cope with change happening so fast that they can't literally can't evolve um, coping mechanisms in time. Mm. Yeah. So, so how does um, so how do we see climate change right now in uh, in the oceans? Um, mainly through temperature is a really easy one to map in the ocean. Mm -hmm. because the ocean temperature is quite stable. Um, here where I am in Tasmania, we always have cold oceans. It never really goes much above 20 degrees and it never really goes much below 15 degrees. It's very stable because temperature travels in, in a water environment. Um, it travels long distances, which means that if it's hot here one day, that doesn't mean the ocean is going to be hot. Mm. Yeah. And so because of that, you can see the temperature change um, over time because what's used to be very, very stable is now stable but increasing. Hmm. And, and uh, what rate are we like seeing some, some of these, uh, um, I guess, temperature rises happening in the ocean? I think it's always to a point something degree that already makes a massive difference. Hmm. So we um, on the coast of Tasmania now have a problem with uh, certain species that have intruded further south than they would under normal conditions. And that means that the ecosystem is changing. Mm. There's sea urchins that are now able to breed on the coast of Tasmania. Hey guys, I just wanted to take a few moments to say that if you're enjoying this episode, I could really use your support. Become a Curious Pete patron for as little as $5 a month. Go to patreon.com forward slash Curious Pete for exclusive bonuses, early access to future episodes, monthly AMAs, merchandise, and more. Your support of the podcast will go towards booking more studio time, upgrading our studio equipment, and marketing to reach out to new and interesting guests. Again, that's patreon.com forward slash Curious Pete. And now, back to the episode. Um, they used to not be able to breed because in August uh, the temperature would not be high enough for the larvae to survive and to be able to settle on the, on the sort of rocks that they need near the coast. That means their larvae was present here, but they actually didn't develop into adult sea urchins mm. because of the temperature. And now the temperature is high enough for them to survive, which means we now have these this species of sea urchin. They're eating the kelp forest, and now there's no more kelp forest. And then the rest of the ecosystem collapses because there's no shelter for the animals to lay their eggs in. Yeah, interesting. I, I didn't know that uh, sea urchins were such a, such a pest. Yeah, certain species are, yeah. 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 Oh, interesting. Because uh, yeah. that was that was another thing I was going to ask you about too. Is that um, uh, one of the things about um, like overfishing the oceans? Is um, you know, doesn't that get have an effect on um, like sea kelp uh, and sea kelp forests? 
um, because they're a big uh, collection of of CO2 as well, aren't they? Yeah, anything in the ocean is a big collection of CO2, okay, including right. phytoplankton. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, the sea grasses and kelp forests are um, the ocean itself is comparable to the rest of the trees that are uh, on the sort of earth side of it. The, yeah, on the hard planet side of it. Yeah, right. So there's 50%, uh, we always say it's, it's around 50% that is being absorbed by all trees and all everything that we can see on land. Mm-hmm. And the other 50% is being absorbed by the oceans. Most of that would be phytoplankton. So those tiny organisms that are floating about on the surface and they're doing photosynthesis. Oh, um, really? Yeah. And then there is a significant portion that would be uh, sort of sea grasses and kelp and all the other animals as well. So don't don't tell me that like the phytoplankton are uh, dying off. No, <laughs> they're changing. So it, the species composition is changing because there's certain species um, that are really good at uh, doing photosynthesis and using carbon. But what's happening to them is another effect of the ocean um, absorbing so much carbon. The ocean is getting more acidic because of that. So the carbon is is being absorbed and that's leading to a higher, uh, sorry, lower pH content of the ocean. And that's changing what species can survive there. So the species that have to build calcium carbonate skeletons like crabs do, Mm -hmm. um, those species are unable to survive because their shells will literally dissolve in the acidic waters. Oh, my God. Yeah, so what's happening um, with ocean acidification, which is a side effect of climate change in the oceans, is that the species that are surviving are, are changing. One thing about phytoplankton is they do have quite a short life cycle and they can turn around quickly, which means there will be adaptation for those species possible. Yeah, right. Okay. Um, yeah. So so it's not like it's not like the ocean's like a bottomless pit for carbon then. No, it's not. Definitely not. Yeah. yeah. So I guess like sinking more whales is probably not exactly like a. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think probably from uh, an engineering perspective, if you found a way to suck carbon out of the atmosphere and then bury it like coal in the ground, mm-hmm. that would probably be the most viable option. Yeah. 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 I wonder if we could just like suck carbon out of the, um, out of the air and just shoot it off into space or something yeah so there was people working on a project like that in switzerland oh. that was yeah a year and a bit ago that i read about that oh that's there is cool. people working on trying to solve these problems for sure <laughs> yeah that was like my um um you know me sitting around me sitting around in my in my living room trying to come up with like you know ideas to uh you know fix climate change uh, yeah. one of them one of them that i really like uh hate about uh plastic for example is mm-hmm. is the fact that there's um is it, what is that that there's the there's the great garbage patch you know that's floating around in the pacific ocean yeah and then you also have the um uh, the fact there's microplastics floating around in there as well that are um that we're now ingesting ourselves yeah they're everywhere yeah and we don't even know what the uh effects are on on us but we're just Still sucking them down, still using plastics, no problem. Yeah. Um, but the, the problem is with plastic, right, is that 
what is it? There's, it, it just, it just keeps recycling into the environment. It doesn't really matter what you, you can't, you can't get rid of it, you know? And yeah, I, I always thought like, wouldn't it be an interesting idea just to sort of collect all the plastic, you know, and just shoot it off into the sun or something to shoot <laughs> it off into space, just get yes, it off the I've, planet. I've had the same thought, but then I'm thinking we're nearly where we're evolving into people who want to travel space. And if the first thing you're doing is creating trash out there, that's going to be your new ocean. You're going to have to space junk everywhere, which you already have surrounding the planet. And then the next sort of boundary for us is to travel space through trash. That's not the solution either. Yeah, we have to true. work out how to recycle things properly and how to reuse things properly. You can recycle things like plastic and aluminium and make them work again. If you do it properly, you'll never have to throw it away. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting because uh, what was it like Australia? They, uh, what their, their policy for recycling was what sending it to um, uh, different third world countries that like China usually. Yeah. Yeah. China usually who would then like turn it into like, you know, crappy plastic toys and then send it and then sell it back to us. Yeah. And, and I, I remember when I was in Indonesia, I, I was snorkeling around the Gili islands and I saw this sea turtle and I was like, Ooh, a sea turtle. And I, and I went and I dove down to kind of like follow it a little bit within distance, you know, not touching it and being respectful. Yeah. And, and then when I was coming back up, my, I, I came up into a gigantic plastic black sheet and it was all slimy. Oh. And I was like, Oh my God. Like I thought it was like some sort of like jellyfish or something. Like <laughs> and, and then I looked around and I, and I saw that the, sea turtle was actually going after and eating like an old yogurt cup. Mm. And I was like, Oh, well that, that kind of takes, takes away the, the fun. And, and I, and I saw like all these, uh, like these long boats going away from the Gilly islands filled with black bin bags. And they were just straight up dumping it into the ocean, not even that yeah. far away. And so, and then when those things would break down, like it would just release all this trash and would just float around. It would go, kind of go with the tide. And, you know, it, it's an in interesting model that Australia has where they don't want to recycle it or do the work themselves here. So they send it off to these countries who, you know, in most cases, um, just end up throwing it in the landfill anyways, if they don't recycle it. And yeah. uh, that's definitely not an option. That concept is not, um, sustainable and i think it's changed now so china said no to taking out recycling last year mm. and because of that there there will be i i believe in good change happening in the future and i believe in our generation driving that and the younger generations um enabling us to do that um but yeah australia needs to definitely invest in recycling uh, most of europe is doing that already for years mm, yeah oh yeah for sure well it's yeah. another thing too like when you look at the was the the like the the paris agreement and i think australia is like they sign it but they don't really seem to be doing anything in order to keep up with it yeah and, and, and that seems um a bit counterintuitive you know it's just like they're signing it to just keep the eu off their back or something yeah i'm not sure exactly what the um what the policy is if scomo if you're listening <laughs> what's the end what's 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 the big plan 
you know. So there's something interesting I read where each state is actually sort of going towards that goal of 2050 or whatever it is and trying to change their energy sources and trying to do the right thing by the Paris Agreement and um, all these other environmental concerns. Uh, I think it's the federal government that isn't following through and um, bringing any of those those ideas that are the state's um, individual uh, priorities into one and making it a statement for Australia. That's where we're lacking it. I think each state even has the right um, policies in place already. It's just that Australia as a whole doesn't get out um, on the international stage and say that that's what they can do. Yeah. Yeah. Well, well um, what sort of what sort of challenges are uh, we facing here in Australia in terms of the oceans and uh, things that us, um, I guess, locally that w- that we can do uh, in order to minimize from. Um, I guess, spiraling out of control? Yeah, that's a big question. (laughs) The ocean, so, um, well, I always find in terms of climate change, even just immediately the heat in Australia, how you can feel it, it should give us a warning sign of what's to come, the bushfires, um, the floods even, like extreme weather events. Um, So the ocean itself is, uh, is quite easily balanced on its own um, if we put the effort in. Um, The animals' populations, they struggle, uh, certain species struggle, and what you're dealing with then is um, something comparable to uh, invasive species, a management of those, um, and, yeah, trying to preserve biodiversity is going to be our main challenge in the ocean. So what, um, like, so what's the plan then uh, with uh, sea urchins in in like around Tasmania? Yeah. So what they're doing here is the research um, has been going for I think yeah five to ten years, but in the last two years, there's a lot of new stuff that's come out, including sometimes um, people go out on boats and just collect them as um, just going out for a snorkel. Um, as a cleanup crew, there's um, injections that people can do to kill them. Oh, um, what do you uh, mean? The like, lo- where they go and just like inject yeah. the sea urchin itself? Yeah, you can inject saline into their body and that will essentially kill them naturally. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Um, uh, there is local uh, seafood producers that have gone into catching them and trying to um, make us eat them, mm. eat the pest. Yeah. Um, well, sea urchins are like delicious. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't had one. <laughs> yeah, I, I've only came across it one time when I was living in New Zealand. I saw these um, these local guys like in the rock pools, and they were just just harvesting sea urchins, and they cracked one open. Yeah, and it's it's like, it's weird in the middle. It's like this bright orange um, meat, mm. and it, it looks like like someone had COVID and was coughing up all the whole time and very so gooey, very gooey. Yeah. And you know, yeah. like, you're like, ah, I'm supposed to eat this. And then you try it and it's, um, it's unbelievable. It's, it's, like, it's just it's, a muscle basically. Yeah, yeah. 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 But it was, uh, it was pretty tasty, but I, um, I was going to say, <laughs> good. I think it's a delicacy in France. They tell Is us it? here. Yeah. Oh, really? 
Yeah. But it, everything is a delicacy in France. It seems that way. I mean, even, <laughs> even in the sunny coast here, um, um, and, and bits down here too, like on in northern New South Wales, is that you have um, the uh, the peepees in in the ocean. Yeah. And it, I was a friend of mine showed me how you how you catch them, and I was I was just gobsmacked. I was like, that is the coolest thing I've ever seen. And <laughs> and he said like, yeah, nobody in Australia really likes to eat them. And they're like a delicacy in like France. Mm. I was like, oh my gosh, look at these things, you know. And uh, so I was, I was pretty surprised that those even existed just hanging out there in the ocean. But um, anyways, tangent. Uh, <laughs> the, uh, I wanted to ask you as well about the bleaching of the reef. Okay. And um, because it was, it was a big deal in the last, like uh, a couple of years, but it seems to have sort of like fallen off of the headlines a bit. And, yeah. you know, is that, is that, uh, is that recovering or is it, or is it still getting worse? Um, I think it's still getting worse. What we're dealing with here with the Great Barrier Reef is uh, um, two, there's major climate modes that are happening, but in the Pacific ocean. And if you compare for example, climate-wise, the last few years when we had um, lots of bushfires, well, last year is the best example. This year, we don't have many bushfires. We're actually seeing floods on the east coast of Australia and a lot of cyclones, and that's because the pressure um, over the Pacific Ocean is different this year than to other years in the past. It's giving us a lot more rainfall, um, and it's uh, giving more sort of cooler climates on the east coast. Mm. Um, so because of that, this year isn't really comparable, but uh, I know that 2019, 2020, the summer was still really bad and 2018, 19, they were all, every year was just getting worse, um, than the previous. So I think, um, that's definitely not fixed, but there is, uh, hopes for people to be working on uh, certain species that they can plant in the reef. Um, but if it just keeps going at the rate that it's going, then we can hope to build a new reef somewhere else, not where it is right now. All right. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, what? And that's something that what we we would have a a direct effect in in building uh, the reef. Yeah. So there is. Um, there is geological evidence for uh, something like the barrier reef off uh, the south coast of WA, for example, mm -hmm. where all you need in the ocean is structures that the coral can attach to at the right sort of zone of temperatures. So um, obviously the Great Barrier Reef used to be in our tropics, um, but that's now too hot. So if there was places for those corals to attach themselves, um, even near Brisbane and further south, um, you could easily build a new reef there. You just need those structures in the ocean. Yeah, right. Yeah. yeah I mean, you know, the how long does a reef usually take to actually build? Like I guess um, I know the size is, you know, subjective yeah. but i mean <laughs> but you know i know the great barrier reef would take what, millions of years wouldn't it too long yes but yeah. um i think yeah well it comes down to what you define as a reef because you can just attach a few corals and call that a reef 
Um, I think the the structure of the Great Barrier Reef, it's built, the corals have built the structures themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, if we were to do something like that, we would have to provide the structures first. So you're not, you're already saving hundreds of years from the corals just laying down carbon. Oh, right. Okay. Yeah. But yeah. Um, the, the problem with that is what I mentioned before is the ocean acidification because those mm. carbon skeletons are happening Um the same problem is happening to them because the corals are building those skeletons um, and they're laying down those shells and that's what's dissolving if the ocean is turning more and more acidic. Yeah. So it's, so it's obviously carbon that's making that the ocean more acidic. Yeah. Um, so in, is, is it, is it, I mean, is there a fact here as to what is the, the most, uh, you know, the biggest perpetrator of that or, or is it still, is that still sort of the jury still out on that? Uh, yeah, I'm not entirely sure because I think, well, humans, the human impact is, I, I think, proven. And I don't really know where that's coming from if it is mostly car emissions, mechanical emissions, or if the farming has such a major impact that you hear sometimes. So, um, I don't really know the answer to that, but in the ocean, when it's acidifying, it's from the carbon in the atmosphere. And the question is, how are we putting out all that carbon into the atmosphere? I think anything we can reduce is already a good thing. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. True. Yeah. It's it's so interesting too when you think about it, like like all those things that you're you're mentioning about uh, what is producing the carbon. Yeah. You know, is it uh, is it motor vehicles? Is it you know energy supply? Is it cows? Is a cow's farting, you know, um, but I, it really is, I guess at the end of the day, all those things wouldn't really exist if it wasn't for humans actually existing. (laughs) So, yes. um, And even if the cows right now, if that was the major factor, but you can cut down on the cars because you have electric cars, then why wouldn't you do that? So I don't think it matters. What is the biggest contributor? I think we need to stop as much as we can in every field of that and just convert to a more sustainable life because we have that technology. We just need to commit to it. Yeah. Yeah. Most definitely. And I think that's the thing that you were saying before as well, that it is a generational thing, I I would say, which is strange that, you know, it takes a a different generation to learn some simple changes. Um, but you know, then again, my mother just learned how to use email like a couple weeks ago. So, I mean, you know, whatever, <laughs> um, the, uh, I was going to ask the, um, oh yes. Okay. So all that stuff was pretty heavy. Um, but, uh, so let's talk about some lighter things. Uh, first okay. of all, um, let's start off with, uh, your favorite sea animal. Octopus. Okay. Uh, take me through that. What What is it about it that you like so much about octopus? I've always been fascinated with them. I think um, from memory, I was hunting octopus with my dad, not for eating, just for play. And mm. when I was a child in Greece, um, we would turn over rocks and then they would shoot off and shoot ink at us and we would go behind them and try and catch them in a net and look at them and then release them again. Um, oh, cool. Yeah, I just always loved how they're changing the color on their skin to match the environment. It's absolutely fascinating to watch. They're super intelligent and um, they're just so weird looking as well. 
Mm. Um, so and just love them. Yeah, they're they're alien like, aren't they? Like it's yeah. like they don't even belong from this planet, and it's it's strange. I think yeah, it's the most removed from sort of what humans think uh, and a living being should be. And I think similar to that is why I also love jellyfish. It's a similar body plan, of just mm. having that bell and the tentacles attached. It's just such a weird layout and. Um, if you think about how long they've survived in the oceans, just unchanged with uh, barely a stomach and some have sort of light detectors and eyes but not really a brain. So that body plan has survived for years and years and is actually doing pretty well in climate change because they don't need much yeah. to survive. So, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, I think I saw it on uh, Attenborough um documentary about how if um a lot of this like ocean species if they were to die off that uh it would it would kill off the fish that actually feed off of the uh you know the jellyfish that that breed so easily and yeah. if, if there was no fish so if we continue to overfish the oceans that the oceans would just turn into like this jelly soup of, yeah this jellyfish soup which yeah. I, I, you know, I don't know what the impact that would be on humans or on the environment, if that would create um, more CO2 or if it would absorb more CO2. Uh, I'm not sure. I think once it gets that bad, we're in real trouble because people are eating fish. That's some people near the coast. That's their whole livelihood. Then you have just massive hunger to deal with. Um and yeah, the environment wouldn't be coping very well because um, it, once you lose that biodiversity, you lose a lot of what we call ecosystem services. So what the what the planet and the ecosystem imbalance can provide to us, um, people have tried to um, use that term to establish an actual dollar value against what things are helping us survive. So, for example, one of the best uh, examples that I always think of is um, the mangroves are keeping um, the shoreline stable and to not be taken away by erosion. Uh, their roots are sort of implanted in the soil and what that's doing is not only giving the fish somewhere to breed safely away from predators but also um keeping the shoreline from collapsing if you have your house there mm. yeah yeah most definitely yeah it's interesting when you look at mangroves they got that weird sort of um ability to live in the the half um you know half fresh yeah. half what is it yeah the estuaries water yeah the estuaries mm. and I, um, I was in Port Douglas recently and I, and, uh, got a little boat tour that went up the river and the, the guy was telling us that the mangroves, um, that if they, the, the way that they process the salt is that it will, they'll put it up and sort of send it all into like a leaf. Yeah. That one leaf will be sort of like the sacrificial leaf. And they'll they'll do that every now and then to get rid of the salt. Yeah, it's like they're crying salt. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's so interesting. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I bet you if you were to eat that leaf, I don't know, would it be salty? Um, I don't know. <laughs> Probably. <laughs> Probably. Yeah. It's actual real salt. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, well, back to the octopus though. I, I yeah. remember I was in um, what was it, Kotal, and I was snorkeling out there as well, and I came across an octopus. And it was, it was so cool. It was, it was actually 
curious about me. It wasn't. Yes. And it was just sort of like, it was just jumping from rock to rock, but it was also like coming around the rock yeah. to, to look yeah. at me. And it was the coolest thing. I saw it's, it's skin change and mm. um, it also did the same thing too. It, it sent like at the end of it, it like sent an ink, you know, squirt, yeah. and then it went <laughs> off and do its thing. And I, um, a few years before that, I was in, uh, I was in Portugal, in Lisbon. And over there in Portugal, they have like, and I, maybe it's a whole thing in the Mediterranean, but the amount of uh, octopus that you see being sold in restaurants yeah. is crazy. It's absolutely yeah. crazy. And, um, and some of these really big ones as well, like uh, on ice outside the restaurant, and they would still be sort of alive. And I thought it was just the, the saddest thing I've ever seen because yeah, um, I, I don't think I could ever eat octopus just, just knowing how like intelligent they are. You know, it's like some sort of, it's like, it would be like eating a dog or something, you know, like you just, you, you just can't seem to um, put a, a reasoning behind any of that. And I, I think there is something to be said about that for a lot of, uh, you know, sea life that people tend to have some sort of disconnect with it uh, because they don't experience it on a daily basis or they don't have the opportunity to um, I don't know, connect with the an animal mm. in terms of watching it and seeing what it can do. It, it, it's like, for example, like, uh, like we do with domestic animals, you know, we, yeah. we tend to really enjoy their personality, but I mean, I mean, fish have the same lobsters have personality, you know? Yeah, they do. <laughs> and yeah, I've I heard don't. people say fish don't have feelings and believe it. Mm. which is really weird to me as a biologist. Like they still have a brain. They have everything that you need to have feelings just like any other animal. So I don't understand why people are confused about that. That's just a complete lie. And I don't know why anyone would be surprised to hear that fish have feelings or can feel pain. Some plants, you can see them when they're in, in pain because they haven't been watered for a while. Mm. It's like everything in nature. If you have a nervous system, uh, any damage done to it is a pain of some sort. Yeah. Yeah. Because we, yeah. we put a lot of um, pressure into um well, a lot of pressure and a lot of uh, focus on killing uh, animals humanely when it comes to land animals, like with cows and, and uh, coming up with uh, rights for say, even like chickens who are laying, laying eggs. Um, but when it comes down to the, to the oceans, it doesn't seem to be any regulation in terms of like, you know, are these animals killed humanely? You yeah. Know? It's strange. Yeah. You cast out these, these nets. Like I've, I, and I've been reading about this in a, uh, in a book, called uh, Ethics in the uh, Modern World. It's by uh, an Australian um, philosopher named Peter Singer. Mm -hmm. And he, uh, some of the essays he has in that book kind of bring up the, the idea that we just don't really think of it because it's sort of out of sight, out of mind. Like a lot of these, um, a lot yeah. of these nets, you know, will, you know, will hook onto fish um, like a, like a bait net and they'll be on there for like days on end, these fish that'll swim through and get stuck in the net. And of course they're going to be suffering, you know? Yeah, exactly. If you, if you bring on a, like a whole, like bunch of, uh, fish, uh, you know, in a net and they'll still suffocate, you know, is that, is that a humane way of, of killing an animal? And the answer is obviously no, <laughs> but there seems to be some sort of sense of, um, 
it doesn't know. count or I don't know. Yeah. yeah. I, I had a friend who was on a, um, on a, on a crab boat out in, um, in Alaska mm-hmm. and, uh, they were, uh, fishing for, uh, deep sea, uh, Dungeness crab. Wow. Yeah. Huge, <laughs> huge. Right. And his job was sounded absolutely brutal. And he said he just couldn't do it anymore because what happened is that they would, um, his job was to take the legs off of the crabs. And so wow. how it would happen is that they would send this gigantic, terrifying looking at crab down a, um, a like a, like a, like a tunnel, like a chute down to the bottom of the boat. He would take it, uh, the body. And he said he had to like, uh, like it, it went on like a kind of like a dull knife that was about the size of my hand. And he said, you'd have to slam the, the, the crab onto it. And he said, these rollers would come out and, and quite literally rip the legs off of the crab. And then he would take the body and then throw that into another chute, which would go into the ocean. So, so if the crab was still alive after being stabbed by this hand-shaped knife, uh, it had, would have no legs and it would just go to the bottom of the ocean. And he said he, he said he would he would do that for like twelve hours a day on the boat, and he said it was just the most like traumatizing thing he'd ever have to go through, and I'd imagine so because it's such a massive animal, you know. Yeah. And so the question again is: Is that an ethical way of you know, you know, ending a an animal's life? I mean, if that happened to a chicken, people would be like, you know, that's how we got drumsticks or chicken wings or something. People would be like, this is you can't just rip it. Yeah. Off, you know. Yeah. Uh, I'm not sure what the solution is there. Um, I guess maybe don't support it. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah, I don't know that much about uh, fishing practices myself because I've never eaten seafood. I've never liked it, and uh, yeah, I don't like the confrontation that it brings. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. I mean, that's um, especially in the in the line of work that you're that you're going into. That's uh, really that's really good to know that you're not uh, like, oh, look at these crabs. Like, oh, you know, tonight. You know. <laughs> Lots of people do that, and uh, I mean, with anything that you're eating, it's okay if you're doing it. Um, yeah, if you're doing sort of a special occasion, if you're eating any animal, I think you can't just lose that connection with nature. That's um, what the what most people are struggling with i think is if you just if you don't even know what you're eating yeah 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 that's yeah that's it and i, I think it also comes down to education you know people being yeah. educated about what to do and, and where to go and um what to avoid um and yeah hopefully it's like you said that there will be some real change coming up in the future for that for those sorts of things i really hope so yeah i don't um, really see the alternative is just everything going completely like worse than it is now and worse for future generations. And I don't really want to think that negatively. Mm. I do also believe in our ability as humans to, to engineer and to come up with solutions. If we really set our mind to it, it's just seemed that in the past sort of, 20 years that was never really the focus whereas finally people are having these conversations all over the world and are trying to work on problem solving yeah taking way too long but it's happening yeah um is is there anywhere that people can um can follow you uh to see your 
ocean adventures uh, on, on social medias or? Yeah, I mean, the most public site would be Instagram. Yeah. I am at Sophtopus. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Very fitting. I, I yes. get it now. Yeah. There yeah. is a beautiful video of me interacting with um, an octopus on the IGTV, and I did put it on YouTube as well. So. Um. Okay, great. Yeah. yeah. Well, I hope that the um, the research that you're, you're doing in um, with the elephant seals uh, turns out to uh, be published and to be groundbreaking work. I, I hope to see how that goes. How, how long is the um, is your study for for that? The PhD will be three to four years. Oh, wow. um, I'm hoping to publish my per- first paper in the next few weeks because we're working on that right now. Okay, great. Mm. Yeah. That'll be uh, that'll be good. So, uh, look forward to that. And um, thank you so much for meeting with me and talking to me about the oceans today. I learned a lot. It was fun to kind of hear that uh, perspective from someone who's an expert um, versus uh, just listening to me, who's just a guy with a microphone. <laughs> you have the right ideas. So, and I do think that I've said this before that conversation is one of the main way that we're going to get this across to the general public having these open conversations with people is really important and sometimes the scientists can get stuck just in in their graphs and presenting very scientific information that is too difficult for people to absorb and uh, and just showing the numbers which people switch off Um, so it's really important to have these conversations everywhere about yeah. climate change and uh, environment and the oceans, yeah. Yeah, basically keep talking about it until it uh, gets fixed. And even when it gets fixed, keep talking about it because we don't really want to have to ever have to um, do like we do in the United States when it comes to uh, medicine. It would be just to slap a Band-Aid on it. We want to do some, yeah. preventative, some preventative medicine here when it comes to the planet too. So, I think I think we have to. There's no other option, really, because humans will be really disadvantaged if we don't get ourselves into gear now. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And now we explore an idea through an essay from the mind of Curious Pete. Today, your ear holes will be blessed with a writing about other holes in an essay about farts. We all like our farts. I know it. You know it. We can't accept it. But sometimes, when no one is around in the car, you fart and smell it just long enough to enjoy it. But then, at some point, you stop yourself from smelling it for too long. So you roll down the window at 100 kilometers an hour just so that you can convince yourself that you're not a fart smeller, even though you are. You're a dirty fart sniffer. I think vegans are the worst at fault here, not because they have bad farts, but because they very rarely have bad smelling farts. So when smelly steamers pop up, they take the opportunity to smell it. Meat eaters tend to always have terrible smelling farts, so they're kind of used to it. So when one pops up smelling like a dead possum and next day Christmas prawns in the bin, 
They just chalk it up as per usual. But vegans, they love it. They say, oh, wow. Now that for sure was not organic. I am never shopping at 7-Eleven again. Well, thanks again for coming on, Sophia. And uh, thanks Thank for talking you, with me. Um, we will, um, yeah, look forward to seeing where you're going. And uh, maybe I'll try to hit you up to get to Antarctica someday. Yes, no worries. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, thanks again. And uh, have a good rest of your evening. We'll talk to you Thank later. Thank you. You too. Bye-bye. All right. See you. Bye-bye. About farts.